welcome back to another episode. Today I am reading Neville Goddard's lecture from 1963, and it is titled In These Last Days by His Son. So Neville tells his audience, tonight's subject is In These Last Days by His Son. I know from my own personal experiences across this country that scientists and philosophers that I meet or are introduced to me as brilliant minds are unwilling to accept as explanation anything beyond and above this world of nature. I begin to discuss with them my personal mystical experiences. They want me to bring it down to this world. I'm not a physicist, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a philosopher but bring it down and explain to them in terms of the structure of this world. So, I can't do it. I can only tell what has happened to me. So, tonight's subject, which is, in these last days by his son, and this is taken from the epistle to Hebrews. The author is unknown, it's unsigned, and it's really not addressed to anyone in particular. He doesn't address it to the Corinthians, or this, or the other, It's simply an epistle to the Hebrews. And so, we are the Hebrews. He's addressing it to us. This one begins his letter. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1.1 A few verses on, which is the fifth verse, he pinpoints the son by quoting scripture. For this author bases his entire argument upon scripture, which he quotes or refers to in every chapter. So in the fifth verse, he pinpoints his son for us by quoting scripture. He's trying to prove to his own satisfaction the superiority of man over everything in the world. For man bears the very stamp of the nature of God. He makes that plain. And now he comes to this quote, and he quotes for us first the seventh verse, of the second chapter of Psalms. He asks the question, To what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? Or again, now he quotes Second Samuel, the seventh chapter, the fourteenth verse. So he makes the statement, Again, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Now these two are addressed, and anyone reading the Bible can see it. These are addressed to David. So he pinpoints the son by whom he will speak in these last days. Now this is a letter to the Hebrews. Now how did he speak in many and various ways to our fathers by the prophets? But first, the 19th Psalm. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. I think anyone who has ever seen the heavens, even with the naked eye, would see the glory of God. But when we ask the physicists to look at it through the mathematical eye, trained as they are with the aid of telescopes, what a joy would be ours were we to to look at it through that eye. But then we come down to the geophysicist and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. And here we see this fantastic world in which we live today. Because here, only in our century here, a young man in 1905 had a very different concept of the world. His name was Einstein, an entirely different concept of the structure of this world, and gave us his famous equation. It startled the physicists of the day, and it still startles them. But we're living in that world today, a world of nuclear energy, 
and he gave that to us in 1905. Here's a statement of Paul's letters written 2,000 years ago. You read it in the first chapter, the 20th verse, of his letter to the Romans. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Doesn't mean the chair, this building, but the elements of the world. Ever since the creation of, of the world, his invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived <clears throat> in the things that have been made. After 2,000 years, no one saw the structure of that basic work of the world. But Einstein saw it and revealed it in his famous equation. In 1928, Professor Dirac, studying his great theory, that is, Einstein's theory of relativity, postulated the existence of a little particle that he named the positron. He said, if the equation is true, this must exist. But no one else heard of it. No one ever saw it, but he predicted the existence of that positron. Four years later, Professor Anderson proved it experimentally in his experiments with cosmic rays and had them photographed. When it first appeared, it disturbed our theoretical physicists. They never heard of it. They'd never seen one. And what to do with it? It completely upset all of their thinking concerning the structure of the universe. But now they saw it, and although they were skeptical when it was first told them by Professor Dyrick, they could not discount it. In great scientists and great physicists, they had to accept it. So they accepted it, but what to do with it? It was a great embarrassment for this thing that didn't act like anything ever heard of by man before. And so in 1949, another great theoretical physicist by the name of Feynman He's now at Caltech, and he wrote a paper on it that came out in the physical journal, <clears throat> excuse me, a scientific journal, and this is what he said. It's a wrong-way electron. It's upside down. So completely wrong-way, its charge is positive instead of negative. It's an electron, but it's completely opposite to all that they knew concerning the electron. Then he said, when a speeding electron hits something, it is usually deflected and continues on its way. If it, if it is hit too hard, its time sense is reversed. And then it moves backwards in time, and that is a positron. It goes backward in time. If I started from here to the end of the room and someone got in my way and deflected me, and then others got in my way and deflected me, at the end of an hour, by all these detours, I found myself back here. I still am not moving backward in time. I come back here in space, but I kept on moving in the right direction of time. An hour later, I'm still here. The clock didn't go back to find me starting at 8, then finding me here at 7. They found me here at 9 with all my deflections. So, an electron when speeding, if it hits something, it's called deflected, but continues on its way. But if it's hit too hard, its time sense is reversed and it moves backward in time, something entirely different. And no one knew what to do with this. For now, we go to the books, or to the book of books, the Bible. And you'll listen to it carefully, for these are based upon my own experience. You've heard the story of the prodigal, prodigal son, haven't you? Every minister 
<coughs> excuse me, and the world has used it and tried to explain what it means. But I don't think they come near the point. So, a prodigal son, or prodigal's, pro, yeah, prodigal son, however you pronounce it, uh, went into a far country. One day, he became hungry, and when he was really starving, he came to himself and said to himself, I'll return. I'll go back to my father's home, for he has everything. And so he made his journey back to his father's home. The father, seeing him afar off, ran and met him, and commanded the servants to bring the best robe, and put it on him, and give him a ring, and put the ring on his hand, the symbol of authority, of power, and of a princely being forever, and put shoes upon his feet. For this is my son, for this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found, Luke fifteen eleven through 24 when he came to himself. And may I tell you from experience that we're all on a journey. I saw it, all of us moving in a negative direction, like an electron. An electron is a negative particle. It's proceeding without noticing that it proceeds, as we do. And here we move forward in one negative direction, regardless of all the details of life. So if today you're disappointed and you move all around and come back spatially to where you are, or to where you were, but you're still moving negatively in the right direction, the clock didn't turn back, but there will come a moment in time that God will hit you and hit you so hard that you will jump back in time to the one thing that begins a whole vast unfolding of God's wonderful play. For when I was struck, may I tell you, it's an experience that no one can describe in words adequately. When you are struck from above, it's a peculiar sensation that you think you are going to die. This is it. There's no possibility of coming out of this. But at that moment, when you are struck, you are struck so hard that you are turned around and you go back in time to an experience that took place. If today is 1963, 1963 years ago or at 1959, as it was in my case, 1,959 years ago, and you jump back over that section of time, not space, and now instead of having heard of the story, you are the star in the drama, and you enact the drama. You're the star performer of the entire play as you jump back in time. And then here you move forward negatively with the whole vast world for another five months, and he hits you again. He hits you so hard that your time sense is reversed, and this time you jump back 2,000 years. You jump back 3,000 years and encounter a scene recorded 3,000 years ago. Suddenly, before your eyes come his son, and when he speaks to you and you've always, as your son, you have no doubt in your mind who he is. The whole thing is so vividly clear to you, and you've always known him. But you know him negatively as you've journeyed through these far, far countries over the ages. And then God hits you. And at intervals, you jump back and jump back and jump back and enact positively, <coughs> excuse me, God's eternal drama. So here we are told this is a particular discovered only in the year 1928, postulated in 28, discovered experimentally in 1932. But God is one, and his name is one. The first great commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So God is one, and his nature is one. 
So the physics of the mind cannot differ in any respect from the physics of the rest of nature. If the little particle behaves this way in this cloud chamber, when they bombard it with cosmic rays and discover and photograph it, it cannot differ in any respect from that same particle in the mind of man. So God and God alone knows how to hit that mind at a moment in the journey as we journey forward into the far country. As we are struck at that moment, it is so intense we are turned around in time, not in space, and we move back across time in the twinkle of an eye as we encounter and begin to unfold God's eternal drama. So we are told in the 33rd chapter, read it from the 18th through the 25th verses of the book of Exodus. Moses said to God, let me see thy glory. And God answered, I will let I will let my goodness pass before you, but my face you shall not see. I will cover you with my hand as I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The face of God, everyone in the world would like to see the face of God. They would like to see the tomorrow, that's the face of God. He shows you the back, his eternal play, all that is taking place. But everyone would like to see the face of God. And should they see the face of God, man, uncivilized as he is, would hurt man all the more. I'll give you a story. Seventeen years ago, I gave a Bible class in New York City. I give them here, but this was seventeen years ago. A couple flew in, or rather they came in, whether they came by plane or train, I do not know. But they came in from San Francisco checked in at the Plaza Hotel where they had a suite of rooms and lived there for six weeks while they came to my Bible class. That's not a pretty penny, may I tell you? When you check into the plaza and take a suite of rooms, I learned afterward they had nothing but money. They were millionaires on both sides. They had no children, were fabulously wealthy, and had this huge apartment in San Francisco up on Knob Hill. And then they had eight acres with the most fantastic home, which I saw on many occasions, here in the Homby Hills. And so many meant nothing to them. Well, what do you think he wanted in my Bible class? And this is a Bible class. He came all the way to New York City from San Francisco to attend my Bible class. He and his wife, no children. She had one brother who was one of the huge, big financial giants in the Bay Area up in San Francisco. No children. They came from a family of no children, all of them, but all had millions. And she wanted more millions. He wanted to see the face of God, if he could only see tomorrow's closing stock market quotations. And so he would sit in the hope. He read one of my books, which is now out of print and called Out of This World, which I stated in the so-called Out of This World what someone could do. On the strength of that they came, money meant nothing. If they could only find out the closing prices of the stock market on Wall Street 24 hours before, he could make another, what, 20 million in one day? He could sell short, he could depress the market, and he could raise it. He could do anything if he could only see the face of God. But suppose he bought the paper that was printed 24 hours in advance and he's moving forward quickly, toward the stock market quotations. His attention is arrested by a little notice on the obituary column, and it's his. He could. He's turning quickly to make another billions, 
And finally, his own obituary notice that is printed for the next day, but he reads it. What do you think would happen to him? He would die at that very moment. Well, that's what he wanted to see, the face of God. And yet I tell you it's already done, for tomorrow is all done. Yet you can modify and change within certain spheres. You can do it, but it's done. Listen to these words, the 10th and 11th verses of the first chapter of Ecclesiastics. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? I tell you it has been before. But there's no remembrance of former things. Nor shall there be shall there be any remembrance of later things to come, after among those who will follow. Men can't believe that because he only has a memory of the past, and he can't see the future until one day when he has struck hard enough for his time sense is reversed. And then he goes back. And then everything said of God in that fantastic verse that's recorded in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke he experiences, and now he knows who he is. Then he is struck again, and he's brought into the presence of the Son of God, as told you in the first chapter, the fifth verse of Hebrews, by the two quotes. He can't get in any, or he can't get in any clearer than the author, whoever he is. He's the unknown author of the epistles to the Hebrews, when he quotes that second chapter, the seventh verse of Psalms. And to what angel did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? These words are addressed to David, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These words were addressed to David. I tell you, David is humanity. The whole vast world, all races, all nations, all together form David. But when you have the experience, all together are coalesced into one lad, and he's David. The whole vast world of humanity is David. God's only begotten son, you don't see it as a nation, as races, one wonderful lad, about 12 years old, and it's the only David, and it's your son. So in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's the finality of God's revelation to the individual when he speaks to that individual by his son, and when he speaks to him by his son, it is then that God succeeded in giving himself to that individual. For he gave you his only begotten son as your son, or as his son. Then you know you are truly the father, collectively, of humanity, and what aspect of your own being you wouldn't forget. If this hand began to itch, it's easier for me to take the hand over here and ease it than to take the hand and compel it to release itself. It's all part of my being. If my back began to itch, and I can't reach it with my hand, I will scratch it with the door, but it's my back. So the whole vast world is my body, and collectively they form one being, and that being is personified as David. And when you are struck hard enough to go back in time, you see it all as one man. It's your son, and he's David. So here are scientists in this generation. In our generation, they have found this peculiar particle. Well, I am not a scientist, but I have found that I can use it in a way that maybe they will not admit, and you can use it. I was struck, and I jumped back in time 2,000 years in the twinkling of an eye, after an enormous blow in my head delivered by God, to have the experience as described in the book of Luke, and then five months later another blow, terrific blow, and I jumped back another 1,000 years in time, not in space, 
and then four months later, another thousand years where the stories were buried. It's a true story of the brazen serpent. All of these are true that man can only encounter, for they took place a number thousand years ago. You encounter them as the star of the roll, as you move backward positively in time, for we are all moving forward negatively, like sleepwalkers, forward. I saw it so vividly one night that all this enormous crowd moving some invisible Mecca, and yet that very moment it was revealed to me that I would reach six hours. I didn't know then my journey would be backward in time, for I was walking with them towards some invisible goal in the future in the negative direction of time, and I had to reach six hours and go back in time. For God's history is completed. It's all done. And man takes God's eternal history, and he himself, after his journey into a far country, like the prodigal son, and a prodigal son comes to himself because he was hungry. What is hunger? Physical hunger? No. You're told in the 8th chapter, 11th verse of the book of Amos that I will send a famine upon the land. It will not be a famine for food or a thirst for water, but for the hearing of the word of God. When that famine comes to man, nothing in the world can satisfy that hunger but an experience of God, but nothing. And so, until the hunger comes, all right, we walk forward negatively, hoping we'll see tomorrow that I could take advantage of my brother. But I can't see tomorrow, not really. But I'll show you in a way how you can apply the same technique toward tomorrow. You can stand here today and assume that it is not this day, this month. You can assume it's another day of this month. And then in your mind's eye, build a world around you that would imply it. This day, apply it, or that would imply it is that day. You can go to the calendar in your mind's eye and cross this is the day. Do anything to make it natural. When you make it natural to your mind's eye, see that thing as you see that things are as you desire them to be on this day. Today is Tuesday. Suppose you went forward in time, and this is now say not March but April. Go forward into April and take a day that you would mean something to you, or that would mean something to you, and see that and see that what you want today in the month of March on this day. You now realize. Look at the calendar, see it, and talk to your friends about your accomplishment. Then open your eyes and you're back on this day. Tuesday on this day in the month of March. You were shocked when you came back to discover that you were here. You're like someone else turned around. And now you move forward across a series of events leading up to that day in April. When you arrive there, things will be as now you've imagined them to be. That's how you can use God's law. That was only recently discovered in the negative, negative world, but we call the world of nature. You try it. When I first read, with understanding the 14th chapter of John, something in the depth of my soul told me I could apply it in this manner. And I did, and it worked. Then I told my audience in New York City many, many years ago what I had proven to my satisfaction and asked them to join with me in an experiment. A lady in the audience, a Mrs. Bauer was her name, was a widow, and she had two homes in Brooklyn that were not in the best district to bring in money, but they were all the things she had in this world, and she wanted money to repair them. She couldn't go to a bank and ask for a loan unless there were tenants. This is what she did in the month of October. She assumed it was, she named a date, the 29th of October, and they were completely rented, and she felt all that she would feel 
were it true that they were rented. Then she opened her eyes. It's only the first week of October. By the 29th of October, every room in her two apartment buildings were rented. Every room was rented. I said to her, Miss Bauer, why did you take the 29th of October? Is it an anniversary? Is there some reason for it? She said, no, I wanted to get a loan, but couldn't get a loan. I didn't think I could unless they were filled. So I wanted to get a loan on the 1st of November. So I took the 29th of October just to feel sure that if they were rented on the 29th of October, I could go to the bank on the 1st of November and get my loan. And by the 29th of October, every room was rented. She went forward in time and actually saw that it was the 29th of October. She opened her eye and she bounced back to that day on the first week of October. She went back in time, not in space. Then she moved across a bridge of incidents and people began to come in and rent the place. And they were all rented. So by the 29th of October, her two buildings were rented. I discovered that by an experiment. Just as Professor Anderson discovered the existence of the little positron that was mathematically predicted. For it fitted in with the theory of relativity. And so Professor Dyrick discovered that if Einstein is correct in his theory, this thing might exist. But nobody wanted it. What to do with it? It was an embarrassment because everything about it was backward. It moved backward in time where electrons always move forward, as they should, electrons in time. So all of us are the electrons of God's world, and we obey willingly. We move forward in time. We think we're so free. We don't know tomorrow is already completed. And we want to see the face of tomorrow, if it does exist. And God said, no, you can't see my face, but I'll put my hand over you. And as I pass by, I'll take away my hand, and you will see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And so he takes away the hand and shows the back. And the back is God's eternal play. And man, when he hits us over the head, we then, at that very moment, we move back. Not in space, we move back in time and cover 2,000 years in the twinkle of an eye. But we think at that moment we are struck that we're going to die. We think this is it. But instead of dying, we go back and enact God's wonderful drama. Where the whole thing begins at that point in time. Then we have access to both the past and the future. Where the whole thing begins at that point in time. Then he strikes us again and strikes us again, but every time he strikes us, just as we are told, an electron speeding, if struck, is deflected in a new direction, but continues on its way in the right time direction. If it's struck too hard, its time sense is reversed. Now this is what Professor Feynman concluded. It changed the entire concept of man's picture of the world. Up until that moment in 1932, people believed that the future is continuously developed out of the past, and we still do. The whole vast world stops and plans its future based upon that concept. He said, no one knowing the structure of the atom can hold that view. We must now believe the entire space-time history of the world is laid out, and we become aware of increasing portions of it successively. I am quoting Professor Feynman. The entire space-time of history of the world is laid out, and we can only become aware of increasing portions of it successively. So if man could see as my two friends who came out from California to New York to take my course, if they could get their wish by taking my class, so they sat listening for 24 hours to make more millions than they already possessed. Then they would have seen the face of God. But you don't see the face of God, you see the back. 
I will show you my back, but the face you shall not see. And so he shows us that divine history is completed. And divine history begins with Christ, Jesus, and ends there too. Everything prior to that was all prophecy about him. So it begins there. And then he is the father of God's only begotten son. For the son calls him father in fulfillment of scripture. He is the one who ascended in fulfillment of scripture again in the book of Exodus. For he ascended as a brazen serpent. And the whole thing unfolds backward in time. You are positive. When you move forward in time, you're negative. And so the prodigal son goes forward in time into a far country until he becomes hungry. And that hunger was for the word of God. At the moment, he was struck and returned to his father's house. And he was given the best robe and the ring upon his hand when he calls you father and his father is Jesse. You know who you are. And everyone will become that Jesse that I am. And all will be redeemed. All the races and nations of the world will one day look into the face in that second blow from God and see God's only begotten son and his only son. So God speaks to man in the last days through his son. And so we have all the characters in the Bible. They're all states. And the day will come that you'll see how true this story is in spite of our scientists and our philosophers. And I know the arguments that I've had. If I tell them the story or they've read about it before I've met them, they invariably will ask me to give them some philosophical or physical reason for these things. Can't do it. How can I do it? I can't present anything now to to science to support my claim. I can only do what the author of Hebrews did. His entire argument is supported by passages from scripture. He either quotes them or refers to them. And the and this actually part is missing, but um, in one of the chapters of he of uh, the in one in the blank <laughs> chapter of the thirteenth chapters of the book of Hebrews, he supports his theme by quoting scripture. So this part of the um, lecture must have been inaudible, but um, he supports his theme by quoting scripture because as some wonderful rabbinical principle has it, according to this principle, what is not written in scripture is non-existent. God's play is over. God's entire play is over. And we're on the journey. No matter where we are on that journey negatively, it doesn't matter what's happening to us at all. You're struck, and when you're struck, you go back to where the real play begins and start it from there. And the first is the birth, and then it gives himself to to you by giving you his son. And then comes a great brazen serpent, which you are. And all these are backward in time. So we're all moving forward seemingly in a negative state, just like the electron. And so we have more money today and none tomorrow. We're famous today and not tomorrow. All these things doesn't matter. It's all a journey in a negative state like a sleepwalker. And then who knows his great secret of elective love. So he hits this one tonight and that one tomorrow night. And each one as he hits it, there is a power. You can't conceive of the power that is used to turn you around. But you are turned around in time, not in space. As he hits you, just like that little negative electron, if it's struck too hard, it's turned around in time and its time sense is reversed. Now here's something that's said of this little thing. It starts from where it hasn't been and speeds to where it was an instant ago. Can you figure that? I'm quoting Professor Feynman. 
it starts from where it hasn't been and speeds to the place it was an instant ago. So I stand here and I put myself elsewhere, say in New York City. I'm physically here, but now I will imagine that I'm in New York City. So I will think about California and I will see it to the west of me, 3,000 miles to the east of me. If I see it still under me, I haven't succeeded in the journey. If I see it around me, I haven't succeeded in the journey. But I will remain perfectly still until I can think of California and see it 3,000 miles to the west of me. Then I will hear and see my friends all around me in New York City, those I would know in New York City, and now seeing it naturally, where I'm shaking the hand of a friend who lives on, say, 57th Street, I'm embracing her. I know her so well, and I'm talking to her. I open my eyes, and she isn't there, and I'm here. Haven't I started from where I haven't been? And didn't I speed to where I was an instant ago? And arriving there, I am struck so hard, my time sense is reversed. And then I go back to where I haven't been. Is that clear? I hope so. That's the story of this little particle. And remember what I told you earlier? God being one and his name one? Well, that's the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. His name is one and they, and again, this was inaudible, so it's blank. He is one and his name is one. Therefore, the physics of the mind cannot differ in any respect from the physics of the rest of nature. If this is how the positron behaves, that an ordinary negative particle known as the electron, if it's hit too hard, its time sense is reversed and then it moves backward in time. Is that clear? Well, now, it cannot differ from the structure of your mind. You could put yourself any place in this world and make it natural, make it real. And when you make it natural and make it real, suddenly you open your eyes. And you aren't there. You're back where you were. You start from where you haven't been and speed to where you were in an instant ago. Arriving there, you're bumped so hard, your time sense is now turned around. And now you move negatively across a series of events leading up to where you had been, only in your consciousness, only in your imagination. I've done it. It works. And don't be concerned about losing your mind, because if you read the modern scientific journals, you would think they're stark mad if you could follow them. Luckily, you can't follow it. But these are men who live in an entirely different world, especially the great theoretical physicists. Men who are quite willing not to come down into the practical world and execute their dream, but just simply dream. And when you read their papers, you think they're completely mad. For these words are the words of one of the truly great present-day theoretical physicists. He's over here at Caltech. He called it the upside-down, wrong-way, twisted-around electron, where everything about it is reversed. Instead of having the negative charge, it has the same mass as the electron, but its charge is positive instead of negative. And then it moves backward in time. And I tell you, from my own experience, I was struck a blow from above in my head. The one who administered that blow was God, and he did it because of his infinite mercy. He took me out of that enormous sea of humanity as we're moving negatively forward toward what we thought to be the goal. The goal wasn't there. It was back in time, right back in time to where the whole vast thing started. And everyone must go back in time and replay that scene as the start performer in the drama. But everyone will all that you now read about Christ Jesus. But may I tell you, you are Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, the Son of Man, 
and that human life has its significance only in the relation to these eternal visions. Everything here in this vast, in this whole vast world has significance only in relation to these eternal visions that are already spelled out for us in the drama of Christ Jesus. Everything that preceded him, told about him and his coming, that very moment in eternity when God is born is going to happen to you, and he'll be born. And then you don't move forward, but you jump backward. It took many blows, all administered by God. The second blow, he reveals his son as your son. And then the third blow, and all the blows come, all from above, and each new one seems like the end. It's not the end. The end is the moment in time when you jump in reverse this interval of a thousand years in the twinkle of an eye and relive the scene as before you in scripture. So, we're moving forward negatively, given us now, for man has discovered about this peculiar particle, and it is all in us. So you can sit here this night and dream nobly and put yourself forward in time and give yourself a shock when you open your eyes and see you're not actually there, but you went forward in time. And read the first two verses of the 14th of John. In my father's house are many mansions, or not so what I have told you. Did I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye shall be also. So you go forward in time and prepare the place. And having prepared it, it seems so natural that it's taking place now. Then you open your physical eye to find you're not physically there. And so the very opening of the eye is a shock, bringing you back to where you were. So you start from where you haven't been physically to where you were the first time, and you're turned around and then you move forward, now negatively, across a bridge of incident, which leads you up to that very moment where it seems so natural to you. Okay, and then, so the lecture actually ends here. Uh, the tape ends. So um, that is the end of Neville Goddard's lecture in these last days by his son. So thank you again, yet again, for joining me for another lecture. Um, I appreciate having you guys here, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. I will see you next time. Bye now.